Berenham Sports. Hello and welcome to Berenham Sports Sportscast on your Saturday evening 6 through 7 where each and every single week, uh, based on your choice of topic, we will debate, dissect and analyse a sporting theme. And it's always great. I tell you what, you're so imaginative, uh, the wonderful Radio Verum listeners. I'm really looking forward to this one. I think, might be wrong, there was a gentleman called Chesney Hawks, who many moons ago sang, I am the one and only. It was a one and only hit for Chesney Hawks. But on your one and only Sportscast, six through seven on your Saturday evening, this week we are talking one hit wonders, not from the world of music, but of course from the world of sports. Sports stars who maybe had a moment of glory but never quite fade, uh, achieved longevity. Those one-cap wonders and those stars who shook the world. Really looking forward to unpacking this one. But of course, talking hits, talking shots, there's going to be lots of shots and action in the Premier League this weekend, which means, as always, each and every single Premiership weekend, we're inviting you to get involved and improve upon our efforts in the punditry stakes. And I know, I simply know, you at home, you are a punditry genius, an absolute guru. You get the, the results right and the score lines correct each and every single week. Well, come on, test us out and prove that to us all. Dead easy. Just tweet at Verum Sports each and every single Premiership weekend with your predictions for the fixtures. Now, should you, and I know you will, get them exactly right, the exact uh, correct scoreline, score yourself three points. If, if, and it is just an if, I know, uh, should you get the right result, but maybe you're out by a goal or two in the actual scoreline, well done, nevertheless, give yourself a point. And I simply categorically know that this one won't be happening for you. But in the unlikely eventuality of you getting it wrong, getting the wrong results entirely, well, nothing for that in this game. Nil point. So three points when you do get it exactly right, the exact correct scoreline. One point if you get the right result, but maybe it's out by a goal or two. And nothing in this game. Nil point if you get it all wrong. And as I say, we're clocking it up and we're competing. And it's very tight indeed. I've got to tell you, I'm usually awful in my punditry stakes, uh, although I am defending champion. But my goodness me, I totally reverted to type this week and I had an absolute mare. But that means it's very juicy indeed. Our new recruit, Neil Stock, has currently clocked up 24 points, currently bringing up the rear, but it is very tight indeed. Boy to the Saints, Graham Griffin. Make sure you check him out on commentary on the red button on the award-winning Radio Verum website to hear Saints coverage live all season. Boy to the Saints, GG, has 28 points. Good weekend for him. The machine, Jason McKellar, as always, looking forward to talking uh, sports with him this evening, has 28 points. The machine on 28 and then it's level pegging between myself and the ace man, Matthew Turvey, both of whom have scored 34 points so far. But we know you can do better, and we'd like you to prove it to us. So tweet us at Burham Sports all season long with your Premier League predictions for the fixtures all season long. But my goodness me, I am really excited now to get into sporting one-hit wonders with the machine, Jason McKenna. And Jason, I know 
not just one hits, but the massive swathe of interaction social media wise here on this theme. What you got for us from the world of social media? Yes, Tony, I'm looking forward to this one because it's always fun. These kind of stories to do with one hit wonders in sport, but the social media has been alight with this discussion point. As you said, it was one of our lovely listeners' suggestions to debate this. We always love listener input, so do get involved if you want to change any of our answers as well, if you think we are wrong. But Richard, and I think you'll have to explain this one, he said Joe Namath uh, from the NFL. We'll come back to that one in just a minute as we work through these social medias. But Jay uh, has explained about a tennis star. He actually sent me quite a, a lengthy description. It was a young Michael Chang, and actually at the age of 17 in 1989, he became the youngest male tennis star ever to win a Grand Slam title. And you know, you, you'd think that that would put you in good stead at the age of 17, grow into a fantastic superstar. But he was a one-hit wonder because although he entered 34 different tournaments and actually reached two more finals in 1996 actually so both in the same year in Australia and the US he never did reach uh, another title and so he did reach as high as number two in the world rankings at one point but only once did he have that amazing win in 1989 at the age of 17 so unfortunately for Michael a one-hit wonder but he still won it once and I still think that that is pretty remarkable. Now Jay's actually explained here that Michael's playing style actually ruined his body. He was a bit like a, a poor man's Rafael Nadal because he ruined his knees due to his aggressive style. Then Michelle has mentioned boxing star Leon Spinks who actually did upset Muhammad Ali but then in 1978 Muhammad Ali then came back seven months later and rectified that upset, adding to his lineage of one of the most winning boxers of all time in terms of titles regained. Yep. Anna has mentioned the Foxes of Leicester when they won the league. And then James has mentioned his namesake, James Hunt, a driver who I share the name with, but not the driving skill. He was definitely a one-hit wonder, but one of the biggest names in F1 folklore. But let's walk... You know, talk through them here, uh, uh, Tony. What is this Joe Namath uh, from the NFL about? What is his one-season wonder story? It's a great tale, and he's a Hall of Famer, um, great player, a, a QB. Um, and he was kind of um, known as, I think it was Hollywood Joe Namath was his nickname. And he earned that moniker because he did live the playboy lifestyle. Um, but he led the Jets to their one and only Super Bowl crown, um, late 60s, early 70s. I can't remember the precise date. And what's brilliant about this, Jason, if you can remember uh, when we were talking about some of the um, uh, malaise with England not winning uh, anything in football post-1966, and I said, well, somebody needs to make a bold statement. In the run-up to the Super Bowl final, the traditional kind of way of going about press conferences was full of decorum and massive respect for your opponents and all that kind of traditional sporting cliche. Well, Hollywood Joe ripped that up. He said, we're going to win. I guarantee you. And obviously that would put a bit of pressure on his shoulders. Um, he was actually Super Bowl MVP, although he really did rely on a great running game and an awesome Jets defense. But I just love that big, bold statement, which he then uh, lived up to. 
again, winning the Super Bowl MVP, the only uh, crown uh, in the Jets locker Super Bowl-wise, the only Super Bowl that name of Hollywood Joe would claim in a career which did see him wind up in Canton in the Hall of Fame. Um, but my point is, you know, he manifested it. He be, he made a big statement, and then he lived up to that. And I tell you, it was it's fascinating. If you watch behind the scenes of these, there's lots of great American football documentaries, and the story of this jet success is worth checking out. Um, after the after you know after that big press conference, literally on the eve of the Super Bowl, his coach was like, "What are you thinking, Joe? Now you know we've got so much pressure on us." And that's the coach, um, and he just said, "Well, look, boss, you know." You uh, you build us up. We, you made me believe that we can win. So I've just said what I believed. Oh, fair enough. And then they went and did it, though, which is marvellous. But great shout there. Love that. Hollywood Joe Namath, a great, great player. Hall of Famer. And sad tale, though, the uh, Michael Ling one. I seem to recall the name. But as you say, sometimes these kind of one-hit wonders, it isn't necessarily through uh, their own fault but the way that their body almost lets them down, which sees them perhaps not rise up to their full potential. Great shout, that one. Again, sporting injuries all too often, isn't it? The cause of maybe a curtailed career. Yeah, it's, it's quite often with these situations with a sporting one-hit wonder. It might be due to, as you said, they're an injury or not living up to potential. But also in these kind of situations, it can be just a one-off. You just have to look as well at, at context and situation and, and quite a lot of sport is, you know, a, a lot of sportsmen would not want to admit this, but luck. And you look at the situation with James Hunt, who was at McLaren, Nicky Lauda at the time, who was at Ferrari in 1976. They had a drama-filled F1 season and unfortunately for Nicky Lauda, and it, it was dreadful at the time because there was a lot of accidents this was far too common occurrence, but he had a near season ending car crash. You know, he was fire damaged. The fire actually damaged his lungs and all sorts of complications with that. But that made, uh, you know, Hunt the front runner. And Nicky Lauda had amassed quite a big lead over James Hunt through the season. But then Nicky Lauda's injury meant that Hunt could race without any kind of opposition and he was winning races winning races and it came to you know towards the end of the season louder returned and again that added even more to this fantastic tale that runs through the ages in terms of f1 folklore but on that final race in japan nicky louder probably with his injuries still in mind the dangers that he'd gone through he saw the rainy weather and he decided to bow out in a race where he could have won the championship. But James Hunt stuck with his nerve. He wanted to win the championship at all costs. And he got it. And, you know, some would say that nerve won out. Others would say luck was on side with James Hunt because Nicky Lauda, I would say, was the better driver. But again, one hit wonder. James Hunt won a world championship. You're never going to take that away even in the circumstances. And um, I think with all these one-hit wonders as well, Tony, the story always is, yes, it's a one-hit wonder, but at least you've had that one hit. You know, many people will go throughout their careers and almost this one-hit wonder is kind of given as, as a negative. But to actually even have one hit at all, one bite of the cherry, you know, having one 
championship to your name is better than 99.9 recurring percent of the population who even take up the bat the ball whatever sport you're taking part in so for you Tony maybe would you say that we're gonna disband that idea as well today that being a one-hit wonder isn't always a bad thing no, absolutely. And again, sometimes, uh, and one of the few that I'm going to introduce a bit later on, kind of reminds us, um, we talk about sport as a reflection of life and a kind of a, uh, a barometer of what we as a species, a human race, can achieve. And you've got to love an underdog story. And one of my one-hit wonders is very much the tale of that. And I'll tell you again, that Leicester City uh, story I thought was absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm sure regular listeners know that I uh, grew up in the mighty East Midlands in Leicester. And whilst I will always be a Leicester Tiger at heart, never was I a Leicester City fan. Now, I'll tell you something that did annoy me in that glorious year. Loads of people that I know from my neck of the woods who the season before were Chelsea fans or Manchester United fans were all of a sudden donning foxes blue and i just thought <laughs> how very dare you i mean we talk about fair weather fans uh but again I, I guess that kind of hit upon a lot of people because i mean one of my dear friends is a leicester city season ticket holder and he's seen the highs and the lows in fact there's an image that he's got in his house where he was uh, captured when he was a very young uh, guy it's a i think it was a player final loss because leicester city i think have made more appearances at wembley the old wembley in a kind of mid written in that sort of 90s period. Uh, I think it was second only behind the likes of Manchester United. They were there for playoffs or other reasons, seemingly all the time. But anyway, this uh, guy, a good friend of mine, was uh, pictured literally weeping, uh, just a child at the time. And, you know, again, that was because the City lost or they didn't make it into the uh, Premier League or whatever it might have been. And I just thought, my goodness me, now that's a fan. That man, can you imagine the jubilation that he experienced, obviously, that year under Ranieri, the Tinker Man, when Leicester City uh, shocked the world and won the Premier League. Uh, but goodness me, great story, that one. And that's why we love these one-hit wonders. And with that very point, introduce, Jason, please, your first one-hit wonder for tonight. Well, I want to start off actually going back in time a little bit further than the Leicester City title winning side. And we do start off in England with Wigan Athletic. Now, obviously, they cemented themselves in the annals of history in 2013 with a very one-hit wonder FA Cup win. And the story of it was amazing. You know, it kind of brought a huge prestige to the club. But also, we're going to open it out a little bit more once I kind of explain how they got there. But arguably mm -hmm. did it actually destroy the club in many ways as well but let's start off with actually their journey there and it start off in a, a very kind of inconspicuous nothing too grand but a one-all draw at home against AFC Bournemouth you know uh, an opportunity there to win but it went to a third round replay and then a one 0 win away at the Cherries Macclesfield Town awaited them in the fourth round of the FA Cup and then Huddersfield Town in the fifth round. And when it got to sixth round with Everton away, a lot of people wrote it off. You know, it was an opportunity there uh, for Wigan to, to have a fairly good cup run. But mm. they'll probably focus their attentions on the Premier League. And also Everton are a pretty good side. But yeah. when it came to the day, well, this is what the FA Cup is all about. And I think... 
you know, the, the narrative is sometimes overplayed of these FA Cup mm. giant killings and, and drubbings and, and whatnot. But this was true. This was a real kind of shock to the system because not only were Wigan the kind of underdogs in this situation against Everton, but also they then went there and won three naught in this quarterfinal. Mm. It seemed to be absolutely preposterous. Now, you do have to contextualise it that Everton were just pulling out a bad run. They'd only seen 12 points from 27. But even so, this was Everton. This was Wigan. These were not teams that should be really competing in the same level. And Everton were proficient through the match, really good passing, but... Wigan were devastating on the counter-attack. They were lightning quick and they got the goals that saw them through to their first Wembley in appearance for a very long time. And so it was a semi-final against Millwall. And actually, because Millwall were in the division below, they were the favourites. Mm -hmm. The favourites then went on to win 2-0 at Wembley, making the dream come true. But it was Manchester City in the final. And, and just to remind people who was in this Manchester City side. You had Joe Hart, who was England number one, Zabaleta, company, Gail Clichy, David Silva, Yaya Torre, Gareth Barry, Sami Nasri, Sergio Aguero, and Carlos Tevez. These were all names. These are all yeah. still names, legends, many, in fact, of the Premier League. Wigan had no chance, didn't they? You know, there, there was no chance that they were going to have a title upset. Well, Roberto Martinez masterminded a Wigan mm -hmm. team to lift the trophy. Defensively, they were solid. They, they looked so good throughout that match. And then I actually remember the moment that Ben Watson came on with his fierce red hair. He came onto the yep. pitch, cutting, you know, a strong figure there, a leader on the pitch. And I was thinking, no, surely he can't do this. Surely that there can't be a moment. Then the corner comes in, 91st minute. He mm -hmm. nods it into the back of the net. I was screaming because, you know, as, as, as a football fan, as a neutral, Man City, the juggernauts, these big spenders, yep. let's put the money thing aside. But this was the little man winning for once. And my goodness, just even thinking of that moment once again, I have such goosebumps. It really is a good memory. And they lifted the trophy. All was good, but... They sealed uh, a European place for the 2013-14 season. At what cost, though, Tony? They mm -hmm. had seen relegation. And I, I can't actually give you the statistic. I didn't look this up, but it does make you question, when was the last time a team actually won the FA Cup and then got relegated? But the cost went on because since then, Wigan have gone down the divisions. They've been in financial troubles. And really, realistically... They haven't looked like they're going to make it back into the Premier League. But on the other hand, you do have to ask the question, as I said, at the very start with these one-hit wonders, I'm sure the yep. Wigan fans won't mind. I'm sure the Portsmouth fans won't mind because they have an FA Cup trophy in their locker, in their trophy cabinet that nobody, no one can ever take away. You know, they can get relegated from the Premier League. They can go down all the divisions, but mm -hmm. forevermore... They will be the side that won the FA Cup in 2013. So they weren't even the team that came second. They weren't the team that kind of got to the final, were there, making up the numbers. 
they shared in the spoils and took it all that day. So I don't know what your opinion is on this one hit wonder there, Tony. It's, it's good memories of Wigan, but is it at detriment for the future of the club? Is it maybe contextualises maybe something negative? Brilliant questions and brilliantly framed uh, and a reminder to us all, it's a cliche, but this proved to us all that there is something really romantic about the FA Cup. And it kind of really encapsulated that and showed, as you said, Jason, that the little man can punch above their weight and rise to the very top, at least in an FA Cup context. Um it's a fascinating question. I think it's very timely, actually, um, that we're talking about Wigan um, this week. It was the back end of uh, last month that a un- as yet unnamed uh, investor from Spain has looked to help them out and they should no longer be in liquidation because, as you say, the financial issues, and we've chatted finances and sport, do check out that podcast. It's very fascinating, and we're going to have a great illustration of it, although I say great, it's actually kind of very, very sad. When the financial pressures, when you slip down the leagues, you no longer have maybe such a, a swell of support, uh, you lose out on revenue, then the parachute money drifts out, and it becomes very challenging. And again, Wigan, one of the earliest uh, and most kind of historic footballing teams, have been in uh, liquidation. I believe that at the back end of last month, a unnamed Spanish investor has saved their bacon. At least there will still be a Wigan to enjoy. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? But for me, um, I... I'm, a, I'm maybe a romantic and I always come back to my old one that winners win and you want you play to win. You know, at the end of the day, obviously, the trappings of success these days are the millions of pounds of the top players and the Ferraris that come with that, et cetera, et cetera, the big houses and the, the lifestyle. But that soon fades. What will remain forever, even after your life, when you're an FA Cup winner or you won any form of silverware, then it transcends time. You're etched into history. And maybe I'm naive here, but I'm still, like I say, romantic. And I'm sure that most competitors, most players play the game that they love, not for the financial successes, although, of course, it is appreciated, but to win, to have something tangible, something to be remembered for. So, It's going to be divisive, and I can understand why there may well have been many, many Wigan fans who would have taken a uh, runners-up medal in that FA Cup final to survive in the Premier League, and then who knows what might have happened. But goodness me, for me, an FA Cup is still so, so tremendous. And again, I know it's been tough times since, but the then chairman, Dave Whelan, who... I tell you, if you cut him up, he would bleed Wigan. He just loves them and put an awful lot of his personal life, his personal finance. He lived and uh, breathed a Wigan um, football club and indeed rugby league club. For him to go up the uh, famous steps and to hold aloft that famous, famous FA Cup title. I mean, what a moment for him. And, you know, again, I appreciate it's been a bit of a slippery slope, perhaps a bit of a double-edged sword, this one. But I fall into the camp. Kudos. Congratulations. You've reminded us of the romance of this wonderful cup. You've proven yet again that there is a possibility of all, if we keep focus and keep the faith and keep doing what we do well, 
and you've achieved something tangible accordingly. So I salute them, Jason. I love this memory. But are you able, though, to see the other side of the coin and maybe recognize this as a bit of a detrimental moment in Wigan's history? I mean, for me, I would say that, first of all, it's a trophy. You're never going to take it away. And Premier Leagues may come and go in terms of actually being in there. You know, they're a small club. They might be dipping in and out. The likes of Norwich, clubs like that, hopefully will survive and stay strong. But you can never take that away. And the other question is, you know, say if they hadn't got to the FA Cup final, doesn't necessarily mean that they would have stayed up. That's an if that's a but you know it's a maybe it's it's all a big question and yes maybe their focus was too much on the FA Cup because they got there but then you can't blame them because when else in their history would they get a chance like that so I, I don't blame them for that and I think the the kind of postulating by some people mm-hmm. that criticizing them that they won an FA Cup and then got demoted you know if anything they should be praised for it in the context of that to stay strong still believe in themselves still have their core beliefs to win out um i still think it's a positive and yes obviously relegation has been terrible for them but as i said forevermore they will be fa cup champions that tale will live on through the years and it was great for people at the club, you know, little people, true fans, as we're talking there with Leicester, you know, Wigan have proper fans, proper people like Dave Whelan at the club there, you know, giving their life. And for me, I can only see it as a positive. And, and surely, surely, uh, you know, people realistically have to kind of agree to that as well, because you're, you're criticising it for a potential staying up whereas they actually properly won a bona fide FA Cup so for me it's always going to be a positive Tony I say in entirely in uh, in coherence with you there Jason however the nature of sports and life and debate is that there will always be an alternative perspective if you think actually it would be much better for the bigger picture of Wigan to retain their Premier League status uh, in the uh, most lucrative league in all of football. And then who knows? Again, we're in the world of speculation. Maybe if they'd have consolidated upon that, there could still have been another FA Cup run in the future. If you think that the pressures of competing on two fronts was too much for Wigan and therefore maybe uh, despite Jason and I believing that this FA Cup glory was indeed that glorious. Maybe if you're at the other end of the world and you think uh, alternatively, I'd love to hear from you. Again, we are not the fount of all things right or wrong when it comes to sporting debate. Get involved. Keep involved. Tweet us at Verulam Sport. But that was very much the underdog story, Jason. Wonderfully told. But my first one-hit wonder is arguably the biggest underdog in sporting history. I'm talking about James Buster Douglas. Um, who achieved what many still believe is the biggest upset in sporting history. When, on February the 11th, 1990, out in Tokyo, Japan, he was, and check this out, it's unbelievable, he was a 42-1 to underdog against the defending, unbeaten, reigning world champion, Iron Mike Tyson. So I'm just going to let that sink in. Essentially, you've got two people 
fighting. And you are, according to the odds, a 42 to 1 rank outsider. In fact, so favoured was Iron Mike coming into this fight that there was actually only one um, kind of betting structure that were taking bets. Everybody else just refused. No, we're not taking bets on this one. It's Iron Mike. He's, he's moving on. As I say, unbelievable. And it's not maybe as astonishing as that, although those are ridiculous odds, because no challenger had taken Tyson beyond round five since 1987, a full three years earlier. So everybody really was just seeing this as a bit of a tune-up job for Iron Mike before a mega bout was being looked to be put together against the then unbeaten Evander Holyfield. He became the first person to unify the cruiserweight, uh, cruiserweight ch uh, championship and had just recently stepped up to the heavyweight division. Douglas, though, was clearly eager to literally upset the odds. Boxing was in Buster's blood. His father, William Dynamite Douglas, himself was a pro boxer and actually ran the gym, which provided Buster's formative schooling in the pugilistic arts. Indeed, Dynamite Douglas, his father, trained and actually managed um, um, uh, Buster Douglas in the early phases of a fairly inauspicious career. But after running out of gas and losing to Tony Tucker, uh, losing a fight he'd been dominating in the early phases. Um, Buster Douglas decided to make a radical decision, came to a crossroads, and actually split up with Douglas Sr. He assembled a whole new team and basically started afresh. He started over. Reboot, I think, is what we call that kind of thing in 2020. Uh, rebooted, Douglas then went on a great run, uh, winning six straight bouts, uh, and uh, including the notable scalps of Oliver McCall and Trevor Burbick. And that run of six straight victories saw him earn a shot at the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world, of course, held by Iron Mike Tyson. Now, there are certain elements of this Douglas story which are absolutely just astonishing. But I think this one is little known and it's really poignant, actually. A mere 23 days, just 23 days before the fight out in Tokyo, Douglas's mother, Lula Pearl, passed away very suddenly. She was only actually 46. Um, now, a lesser man may well have just been consumed by grief, wanted to be there for his family, and, you know, who, who would begrudge that? Douglas, though, I think channeled this grief really positively. And he just continued to train ferociously, and he would, of course, cause one of the most unlikely upsets in sporting history. Again, Douglas was unfavoured here. As I say, Iron had been knocking everybody out before him. He was unbeaten. He was seemingly unbeatable. However, Douglas did have certain physical advantages over Mike Tyson. Uh, a very, very substantial 12-inch reach advantage. Of course, no pundits or, or you know, uh, experts kind of factored that in because pretty much everybody had a massive reach an edge over Tyson. And with his devastating head maneuvering and his lethal speed had just almost made that a non-issue, counteracting it in, in his bob and weave style. But it is a giant reach advantage, 12 inches. And in the early phases, a, a Douglas would actually dominate Literally from the opening bell, 
he'd hit Tyson constantly with his jab. And then more importantly, he'd keep Tyson out of range and obviously away from that much heralded punch power. That being said, I think, and I don't want to diminish Douglas's achievements here. It's a great tale. It's a true story. It's the underdog legend. But it is fair to say, whilst Douglas was laser focused in his training and his preparations, Tyson was less so. Maybe having one eye on that touted uh, Evander Holyfield match, which would have been, at least in their heads, two unbeaten fighters colliding. Um, But this kind of lackadaisical approach was reflected not just in Tyson in ring, but was shockingly reflected in the uh, corner team. After, a fifth, uh, after the fifth round, a series of heavy blows to the eye uh, caused swelling. Um, again, that Buster Douglas jab causing such damage. But Tyson's corner team had not even considered to bring an ice pack. So they had to resort to using a glove, a latex glove, and tap water to act almost as a, a you know, an, uh, to ease the swelling a touch. Very much improvised, but again, basics here. You know, you're going into a fight. You're against a heavyweight fighter who can punch, and you don't even have prepared an ice pack. You're having to improvise. It very much, I think, uh, kind of in microcosm reflects the uh, kind of malaise that had set into the Tyson camp at this stage in his career. Um, Tyson, though, did almost save face. In the eighth round, he connected with a right uppercut, which knocked Douglas down, down, but not out. Douglas staggered to his feet at the count of nine. Although... And this is where, again, you've got to love sporting controversy, even in these big moments. According to an official knockdown counter, this should have been 11. If it would have been 11, this wouldn't really be Buster Douglas one hit wonder, but Buster Douglas yet another uh, defeated foe for the undefeatable Iron Mike Tyson. Um, But in a boxing context, it is the ref, the referee, who is the arbiter. And the ref's count said nine, so Douglas was free to fight on. The ninth round was an unbelievably brutal affair. And if you've got three minutes of your life spare, check out Mike Tyson, Buster Douglas, round nine. It was brutal, with um, Tyson going in for the kill, sensing blood following that knockdown in the previous round. Um, But um, Douglas giving every inch back. It was a hellacious round of heavyweight boxing. And so to the 10th, and as it would prove, the final round. Here, Douglas staggered Tyson with another blistering uppercut. He'd follow up then with a four-punch combo, which would cause the first knockout and the first defeat of Mike Tyson's career. Not a one-hit wonder here, but a culmination of a great night's hitting from the unfancy Douglas. The Tyson team did lodge an appeal based on the controversy around the eighth round potential knockout. But this was dropped just four days later, meaning James Buster Douglas was recognized as IBF, WBA and WBC Universal Champion of the World. Douglas would then go on to fight Holyfield, who, of course, we'd mentioned had been lined up to fight Tyson. 
Um, I don't know whether Douglas had already almost achieved his Everest here to use the Jim Telfer quote. Maybe the Tyson fight was the zenith, but it is the case. We mentioned his laser focus and his ferocious training coming into that Tokyo bout against Tyson. Well, I don't think it would be fair to say he matched that in the Holyfield run-in. In fact, he'd weigh a full 15 pounds over a stone in our money, uh, heavier than he did against Tyson. Um, and it was actually the second heaviest he'd been in his whole career. Holyfield utterly dominated Douglas and would knock him out in round three. A third round knockout from Holyfield. That being said, it was a decent paycheck for him. He received 24.6 million refuted, uh, reputed payday, uh, Douglas, $24.6 million for this bout and his one and only defence. Douglas retired after this loss and would see his weight balloon. He actually almost died following a diabetes coma. Um, getting back into shape following this, obviously a coma like that can snap your focus back. Douglas would attempt to come back, but would never, ever again reach those giddy heights. He would officially retire in 1999 with a fairly mediocre career record of 38 fights, six losses and one draw. 38 fights, six losses and one draw on his record. But that night, back in February 1990, was anything but mediocre, more meteoric. And for one night, this journeyman fighter redefined the rules and reminded us that there could be plenty of bite in any underdog. I think a true one-hit wonder there. But your thoughts on the legend and the story that is a true story of James Buster Douglas and his one-hit wonder. Yeah, Tony, you know, you've lovely explained the story, given it quite a bit of context as well. And, and actually, you know, the, the story of Douglas kind of overcoming that personal loss of his mother uh, adds to that amazing, amazing narrative of the, of the one-hit wonder. And, you know, I don't want to take it away, but Tyson kind of lost his way in the 90, uh, 1990 year. And in many ways, he actually kind of attributes this loss as one of his successes in many ways because he said I needed that fight to, to become a better person a better fighter but as I said with Wigan with uh you know with Leicester as well they did it you know even if it was a one-hit wonder he was still the uh, world champion boxer heavyweight champion of the world universal Cause... universal as well he had all the belts at that time unbelievable for, for seven months and you know if I had even a day as world heavyweight champion of the world I would be glowing and again you said there that he got a great payday you know this was an opportunity it was almost Rocky-esque the, these Indeed. kind of opportunities there and sadly you know he kind of uh, fell to fell fell away after that uh, Tyson victory but it was still his moment in the limelight and it, it then added to that kind of uh, Holyfield-Tyson uh, fight that would eventually come and, you know, with controversies. And Buster Douglas, you know, he can be happy forever in, in the sense that he was, for a little while, the heavyweight champion of the world. And, and I'm sure, you know, that 
it, he wouldn't begrudge any day during that time. I, I just hope that he used that kind of payday for positive in his life because, you know, he wouldn't get that again. But I, I don't know, Tony, do you think that Douglas did well in that match, you know, to actually kind of counter the Tyson tactics or was it all down to the fact that Tyson lost his way, especially after the, the death of D'Amato, you know, his, his really kind Absolutely. of important, almost father figure in his life? And I don't think anybody could underestimate just how crucial and critical D'Amato was to the uh, Tyson psyche, that um, surrogate father figure. And my goodness me, if you just ever get a chance to watch the early Tyson training regime, it's just devastating. It's terrifying, borderline, to witness this guy's speed and sheer ferocity. One can only imagine and speculate about what could have been possible for Tyson had he retained that D'Amato relationship. Because we know now, and it's very kind of open about it personally himself, to his credit, there was a certain fragile psyche to Tyson, maybe one of those that was always destined to implode. And I don't think it would be right or proper to um, kind of take out that lack of preparation. I mean, like I mentioned already, the mere fact that for a uh, heavyweight championship bout, the corner team hadn't uh, had the wherewithal or presence of mind to have an ice pack ready, even just I mean, it's just like uh, habits, isn't it? These are habits. You just do it even if you think the best case, though, he's going to cruise him, he'll kill him in one. That's what Tyson does. Well, you just still need to be prepared. And I just think that kind of uh, lackadaisical attitude had really crept in to the Tyson camp uh, under, shall we say, the less than, um, you know, I'll use the more, uh, I'd say malevolent almost, um, guidance of Don King, who'd become his promoter post the Gustamata uh, era. So, you know, again, I'm not um, taking that away. But by the same token, I don't think we should diminish Douglas's efforts here. Again, I just think that this was his moment. And he trained like a beast. Again, he'd never get back to that level of kind of training application and dedication. You know, his career record is a reflection of who he is as a fighter. He was an also, he's a journeyman boxer. But for that night, okay, under the circumstances we discussed with just the demise of his mother, sadly, just 23 days before this super bout, it was his moment. He seized it. He channeled all that grief. I'm sure he did really positively. And he shocked the world, literally. And honestly, Jason, what I, what I think is so crucial about this, again, coming back to the odds, 42 to 1 underdog in a two-man uh, fight. It's just it's ridiculous. And even now, it's kind of the barometer, isn't it, that uh, sports writers and broadcasters refer to when similar upsets again, uh, you know, occur. I don't know, when Japan beat South Africa, for instance, in the Rugby World Cup. Again, it gets compared to Buster Douglas beating Tyson. So it's kind of got that, that barometer, that kind of historic measurement stick when it comes to the underdog. And for all those reasons, got a lot of admiration for him. And as you said right at the beginning, Jason, one hit wonder, though it may have been, it's there forever and a day. And credit to the man. But I know now it's time for the man, the legend, Jason McKenna, to inform us of who he's got up next in his second choice in this wonderful conversation of sporting one-hit wonders. 
Yes, so I take it back even further in time in the footballing world. And this goes back to 2004 and a very shocking. I don't know if this is more shocking than the Wigan victory. Maybe so you can tell me, Tony, your opinions in a minute or so. But the BBC actually voted this as the most shocking victory in European Championship history. And we are talking about Greece 2004 lifting the trophy in Lisbon. Yes, winning that Euro 2004. And the funny story is, is that before this, Greece hadn't actually qualified for a European Championship yeah. in 24 years. So they'd never won a match at the final stages of an international tournament before 2004. They were very, very much minnows in terms of international football. Uh, the team had actually lost two of their three warm-up games weren't fancied at all and they actually went into this at odds of 150 to 1 which you know in comparison kind of mammoths that of even Buster Douglas with 42 to 1 <laughs> but in terms of it uh, their 15 uh, sorry 15 of their 23 man squad actually plied their trade in Greek domestic football so even mm. then the players weren't names in Europe. You know, you kind of look at smaller teams, maybe Ukraine or, or other teams around uh, the, the European Championships, and you'd say, you know what, they've got a fair few players maybe playing in the Premier League or the Bundesliga. But even then, it was domestic players making up the majority of that Greek team. Yes, there were some that plied their trade at top European clubs, but realistically, 15 of 23 were playing mm -hmm. in the domestic league and they weren't even fancy to qualify for this championship as I said 24 years and they had a very difficult qualifying campaign as they were pitted against Ukraine who had the likes of Andrei Shevchenko who was still in his pomp at the time and then playing Spain as well who were always you know a fancied positive team in terms of it they, they hadn't won anything at that time but 2004 they were still full to the rafters with talent but they managed, against all odds, to qualify out of that group. But then they entered the group stages of the actual Euros against very strong opposition. And none more so than one of the favourites and the hosts, Portugal. But continuing that Iberian theme, they actually were drawn in the group against Spain. So they were once again pinted against a team that they struggled against in qualifying. And to mark it all off... A difficult team on their day, Russia made the final in what was going to be a difficult group of death, as they sometimes call it at these tournaments, mm -hmm. for Greece. There was an opening game shock, though, as the host Portugal lost to the strong Greek side 2-1. And then later, the Greeks managed a commendable draw against Spain. That all but assured uh, qualification into the next round. But ironically, the most easy in air quotes game of the group stage is where Greece actually had their most difficulty and were actually beaten by Russia 2-1 but they made it to the knockout stages against all odds and they caused some shockwaves but this was more like a, a tiny ripple in the ocean at this moment they hadn't caused the tsunami effect just yet but they were playing one of the best footballing nations in the world at the time in this knockout stage it was none other than the current holders, France. 
Well, yeah. of course, France wouldn't lose to Greece, would they? Nope. They were breezed past with 1-0 victory. And so too were the Czechs in the semi-final. And this put the Greeks in an unfancied final against the host Portugal. You know, it was all different now. Portugal were, were in the final. They'd beaten England. They were looking good. They had probably... You know, a lot of Portuguese fans would say their greatest generation, arguably since the World Cup semi-final of 1966. You had the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, still in his infancy, but a fantastic, talented player. Figo, Rui Costa, amongst many others who would become household names like Carvalho of Chelsea, but of Porto at the time. And of course, the Portuguese were in front of their home fans, Home crowds arguably giving this golden generation a big yep. boost for the final. And memories probably had faded of that initial loss, but it wasn't meant to be. For the host, that is. Portugal's fairy tale of finally winning a tournament and at home was dramatically dashed. Another 1-0 win saw the Greeks lift the trophy. Christeus win won the winning goal, cementing himself and the team in Greek folklore. But this team was most definitely a one-hit wonder. And I'm not taking it away because, again, they won it. They've got that trophy and forevermore, Greek people can look at that team. They're all going to be legends. The manager, from the goalkeeper to the striker and even the bench, they're going to live on in Greek footballing folklore for many, many years. But after that, Greece have not achieved probably anything in terms of international football. After this amazing Euros, they didn't even qualify for the next tournament of World Cup 2006. They made it to the group stage of the South African World Cup and in Brazil they fell at the round of 16. But their European glory has, you know, I'd say embarrassingly they went out at the next European Championships where the holders lost all three games and went out in the group stages. And since then, they haven't qualified for Euros. Euro 2016, Euro 2020, which of course has been postponed until Euro 2021. Yeah. But the Greeks haven't done anything since then. They are amazing one-hit wonders against all odds. Probably some of the most negative, boring football that you can see. But who cares? They've done it on their day. People criticise Mourinho, they criticise Burnley. Like we talked about Sean Dyche last week, negative football, but he gets the job done. And Greece is the ultimate story of this. I mean, what do you think about this amazing tale, Tony? Do, do you have fond memories of Greece at Euro 2004? I wouldn't say fond because, once again, it represented another moment of opportunity for England. We've much documented that. Uh, Rooney, I think, got four goals in the tournament. Uh, but again, England would fall, I believe, to Portugal in uh, the knockout phases. Uh, of course, as you referenced, Portugal going on to the final in front of the home faithful. Um, but I hate to keep going back to this, Jason, but once again, um, as you rightly said, I think uh, subsequent to this, Greece haven't really um, bathed themselves in international football and glory. But who would have anticipated this? I believe this was only the third tournament, major tournament, uh, that they'd ever qualified for. So, again, it's no disrespect. It's just uh, giving it the right word to say that in an international footballing context, Greece are minnows. So quite frankly, in much the same way as the Buster Douglas element, 
I don't care if this was played with drab football. I don't care. I care not a jot. Because, again, they won. They ground out results. And they claimed the silverware. Seizing the day as they did. Wonderful, I say. But, sorry, once again, I will draw a line. But you can't help but look on with a borderline bit of envy from an English fan's perspective. With the sense that, again playing whatever style of football you like they got it done against the odds only in their third major international tournaments and they've got that silverware england as we've discussed check out the podcast on uh the podcast section of the award-winning radio Venom section we've analyzed to death why england haven't won anything football-wise international level since 66 but like i say greece in the footballing context we can call them minnows and it's not an unfair word but they've got bragging rights over England, haven't they? Sorry to bring this back, but I just can't help it, Jason. <laughs> I think we have covered it in the podcast, though, and I definitely recommend people to listen to it. And, I mean, England, yes, I suppose they can be embarrassed by that affair. I, I mean, I would like to keep the focus on Greece, but in terms of it, Absolutely. should Portugal be embarrassed? Because this was their golden opportunity. Again, another team, at, at least... England have won something. Portugal have been forever the bridesmaid. And this was the opportunity of a generation, of a lifetime, maybe in forever. Because when next are they going to have a tournament in their own backyard? So I'd say the most embarrassment coming from that tournament probably was Portugal. But still, yes, I, I think it does embellish the, the story that we have opened out before. That England should be embarrassed when teams like Greece can kind of come to the fore and as you said carpe diem they seized the day they look at the, at the opportunity they probably didn't fancy it but they thought we're going to give it our best go they believed themselves they had a clear kind of style and, and this is something again that we have said we, we've kind of talked about it so much but at least you know it was in air quotes negative football but it was a style and they stuck to it and that's why they got what they got from it so I mean it's a footballing neutral then kind of removing the England uh, embarrassment yeah. from it do you think it was a good day for football to see those moments I mean uh, for me yeah, as, as a football no, no fan no question about it no question about it right um look <laughs> In rugby union, for instance, um, there's basically been um, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and England four winners of the, uh, the the Rugby World Cup. Granted, it's still in its relative infancy. In another uh, rugby uh, league World Cup, for instance, literally this gets very embarrassing, where it's the victors are Australia and Great Britain, in the guys, uh, you know, all four nations uniting for previously at the World Cup. And I think when sports, as it must do now, aspires to engage with the world, and football is, of course, the universal sport, the most uh, participated in, the most kind of eyeballs watching, uh, biggest fan base uh, sport on the planet. And I just think it's vital that these minor nations get something tangible because that inspires another generation. Granted, that hasn't yet yielded any further successes for the Greeks, but it's more of an emblem to all other nations around the world of what can be possible. And for that reason, um, I really think that the key thing, the most critical thing for all sports, is that it's got to be competitive. 
it's got to be up for grabs or at least questions because that's what creates the compelling narrative. That's what draws us in. And that's what makes us fall in love with sports when it's all too predictable, maybe just between a handful of teams, then eventually it just becomes a little bit uh, neither here nor there. So, yeah, I just think for what, what it represented really, rather than for what it actually was, is for me the key to this Greek victory. And Jason, I've got to tell you, truly, truly love that uh, you brought this. They are certainly a one-hit wonder. There hasn't been anything since. But do you think there could be another great day for the Greeks? It's a difficult question because... You know, as a small nation and their league isn't the best in terms of it. I mean, I wouldn't write any nation off it in terms of ability. But looking at their current squad, I don't see kind of any stars, any abilities that Mm -hmm. are going to bring them there. I mean, if they have a certain philosophy and a style that they want to adhere to, it might buoy them up the, the ranks of European football. But I can't see it for a long time anyway. This current generation isn't good enough. There might be a next generation, but I look at other teams around Europe as having much better footballers, much better abilities. And I think, if I'm honest, I think France are going to dominate world Mm -hmm. and European football for a long, long time, especially because they've got the mix right of kind of the youth bringing it through. And the fact that I think it's one Parisian uh, kind of youth team setup produces... Uh, like a, a ridiculous like 12% of European top footballing talent, that they yeah. are superb in bringing on their youth players. But now for my final piece of the one-hit wonder uh, puzzle, I'm going to take this slight, down a slightly different angle. Um, I want to introduce everybody to a man by the name of Ronald Mansell Davis. And he really does refer to himself largely as Mansell. You've probably not heard of him. I hadn't actually until I started doing a bit of research. But this man is known as the King of Aces because he's clocked up 51 holes in one in golf and holds the title all-time most hole-in-ones. So we're talking one-hit wonders, and I'm introducing to a man who is wonderful at sinking holes in one, the ace, as they call it. To give you an idea... Just check this out. This is going to stag you. I want you to be sitting down while you listen to this. We're talking crazy odds in James Buster Douglas's 42 to 1 outside shot when he very much underdog styly defeated Tyson back in 1990. But I hope you're nice and set comfortably now because these odds are going to shock you. The odds is estimated of making a hole in one are roughly one in 12,500. One in 12. 1,500. So, just pause and let the thought of the staggering odds of 12,500 multiplied 51 times seek into your mind. And you just get a sense of uh, Mansell Davis's remarkable achievements. Hole-in-ones are kind of considered the, ho- the holy grail of golf. Uh, much like perhaps the nine dart finish in darts or, uh, you know, a one, four, seven, perhaps in snooker. Uh, and it's for those reasons that, that they have those odds of one in 12,500 of being achieved. And 
as the uh, pursuit of the Holy Grail stories, they're often shrouded, Holes and Wands, with lots of mythos and lots of legends. No one, for instance, would give much credence to the claim that North Korean's now dead leader, Kim Jong-un II, made five hole-in-ones in a single round. Sure you did, Kim. And I'm sure many people would have to agree with you. But there we go. Uh, but yes, as I say, lots of people make claims. You know, it's kind of the, uh, the tales get exaggerated, I think, quite often. Here's the thing. Because there are so many vagaries around hole-in-one record-keeping, the Guinness Book of Records... Uh, in connection to logging aces, only uh, limits recognition to hole-in-ones achieved in pro events. Now, in that context, it's Messrs Hal Sutton and Robert Allenby, who are the ace kings, tied with 10 on the PGA Tour. But I'll build up to it. Another man, another amateur called Norman Manley, claims he clocked up 59 uh, aces, eight more, eight more than the guy we're focusing on, Ronald Mansell Davis. But the majority of Norman's acclaimed uh, holes and ones were achieved in the 1940s. And uh, this now 90 plus year old refused to speak with golf.com who were really drilling into this topic. Also, most of the people who were around playing with Norman uh, may actually now be six foot under. They would certainly be, like, like Norman is, well into their 90s, many of them into their centuries, most of whom probably no longer walking this plane. Now, by contrast, Mansell Davis, the king of aces, the man we're profiling, not as a one-hit wonder, but as a wonderful hitter of one holes in one, he embraced an interview with golf.com. And, and I think this is important, it's by no means uh, a guarantee. However, let's not be so cynical. Mansell actually passed a polygraph test or a lie detector test uh, when discussing his exploits. He was very calm. He was very uh, obliging. And, you know, he just simply said, I know it happened. I was there. So he was more than happy to take the lighted test to test. And again, they're not the exact science. They can't categorically be known to be the truth. But fair play to the man who was willing and open to take it. And goodness me, as far as the lie detector test is concerned, when he claims to make 51 holes in ones throughout his uh, career, gets a little tick in the box. So like I say, let's not be so very cynical people. Let's give him the benefit of any reasonable doubt. Anyway, Mansell made the first of his record 51 holes in one way back in 1966. And his last was made in 2007. He's 66 now. And the Texan has had a really colorful life. He was introduced to golf at the age of just six and was shooting 18 whole, uh, rounds um, in the sub 70s into his teenage years. So he was quite a prodigy and a top player on the West Texas junior circuit. He quickly emerged as a hole-in-one specialist and he had notched up an amazing eight in a year uh, that ended in 1967. So eight holes in one in a year, truly amazing. By 20, he'd achieved 20 hole-in-ones, one for each year of his life. Mansell explains 
It got to the point where I was expecting to make one almost every time I played. Love that confidence, but it's been built up over many years of successes. Again, 20 holes in one by the age of 20. Truly amazing. Now, crucially, all of his aces have been verified by contemporaries. His dream was to make the PGA Tour. He did. He became a tour pro during the 70s. Um, but he would really settle for a life as a tour pro, uh, a golfing uh, tour pro, as opposed to kind of being the major league tour stars. But along the way, he rubbed shoulders with golfing royalty, the likes of Lee Trevino, Arnold Palmer, uh, Arnold Palmer and the winningest major winner all time and remains all time, Jack Nicholas. And he'd even uh, befriend cultural icons such as Willie Nelson and Evil Knievel, bonding over games of golf. There is a bit of a secret to Mansell's hole-in-one successes. He claims that he would always aim for the hole. Now, I mean, it sounds obvious, really, but most golfers don't. Um, they tend to look to get themselves the best lie. And sometimes the, the dangers of aiming straight at the flag is that then you fly past the hole, leaving your second shot on a par three. And it is, tends to be par threes, the shortest of all the golfing uh, holes, which uh, cause or see holes in ones achieved. So most players, they don't actually aim at the flag. They aim for a spot, which will give them the best possible next shot. Um, so it was quite unique in that regard. But I love this. We talk about uh, manifestation. We talk about uh, positive thinking and visualization. And he really had a real power for this. I think this is an important lesson for us all here. Um, he, he said again, remember, he, wrote, he rubbed shoulders with Jack Nicholas, And this is a direct Mansell quote. Um, Mansell goes on to say, Jack Nicholas used to say, go to the movies in your mind. I love that. I remember he repeated it. Jack Nicholas used to say, go to the movies in your mind. Um, Mansell goes on to say, well, when you put me on a tee of a par three with an iron in my hand, it was like I was watching things in IMAX, giant screen. I could see it all in living color. I mean, that's just potent visualization. Literally, he'd done it so many times. He was so confident he could see in IMAX, full color, surround sound, the image of him sinking another hole in one. One only wonders what he could have achieved had he been able to apply that kind of manifestation, visualization, power to the rest of his game. Who knows what he might have accomplished? But as it is, the king of aces aced his lie detector, as I mentioned, and uh, in our consideration of sporting one hits wonders, one is left in wonderment at the extraordinary life and, and achievements of Ronald Mansell Davis, the King of Aces. So, yeah, I thought I'd take a slightly different start, slant on here for our final one. I know, really, we're looking at one-hit wonders, those who maybe just had a moment of glory. But this career bubbling just below the elite level, although rubbing shoulders, staggering, if it is true, and lighted tested have proven 51 recognised hole-in-ones. Remarkable. What's your take on this, Jason? 
No, I love the way that you've you've kind of gone on a different route here and quite literally here's a one hit wonder in certain contexts or 51 times. It's a truly fascinating story and the the art of the visualization is what true champions do but it what fascinates me most is that he couldn't kind of turn that to a whole game was it the fact yeah. that he, he didn't want that pro career because you kind of said that he he did want to to kind of turn semi pro but he didn't want all the limelight maybe that's where the i don't know psychological cut off was for him so that you know once he'd reached that he was kind of happy it's a brilliant question and brilliant point. Look, he did match. He, he did play tour. He was a professional, excuse me, in the seventies, but never for very long. But he wanted to earn a living in golf, which he loved, and he got to hang out with some celebrities because basically he was the club pro at a very um, well-known um, club in America. So he, like I say, the great and the good of the golfing world hung out with him. He got he was paid. His livelihood was he was teaching for other people to play golf. So he was a very capable golfer, but you're right, Jason, as I ended uh, the piece, um, you can only imagine uh, what he might have done if he was able to take that kind of supreme IMEX style visualization, which he had for the uh, tee off at the par threes to the rest of his games. But he never quite mastered that. His approaches around the greens on longer courses let him down. He'd often be very inaccurate. Um, so it was a kind of unique gift that he had and he lived his dream. He did accomplish the goal of being a PGA uh, pro and then settled, I think you could say, for a life as a, um, a, a club professional. But a great life it was, like I say, Evil Knievel he was hanging out with, Willie Nelson, and I'm sure he's got many wonderful tales. Uh, and the likes of Jack Nicholas, who he quoted from there with regards, see it like the movies. These guys were friends of his. They played at the club and he was the club pro. So it's a great tale. I really hope it is true. And I respect the man for being willing and open to take the lie detector test. And I tell you what, it's a great interview here. It's in golf.com. Um, check it out online. It's fascinating to learn a little bit more on this fascinating character. Are there any other uh, one-hit wonders that you think of when you we use that in a sporting context? I mean, you can kind of compare it to other teams in other leagues. I mean, obviously, my kind of focus is on uh, football, but you can kind of look at maybe... Maybe not one-hit wonders, but they were definitely for a little while a wonder. Maybe Uruguay in the infancy yeah. of the World Cup. Uh, but also one of the ones that kind of stands out for me is Just Fontaine, the French footballer who scored a record number of goals at a World Cup. And then he just never did it again. Uh, I think it was 14 or, or, you know, it was double digits anyway. And for a long while, he actually had the most goals at World yep. Cup history, but from only one tournament. So, yeah, the, the, there are plenty of kind of one-hit wonder stories. And I think just the point that I said at the very beginning, just because you did it once and, and once only, doesn't kind of derive from the fact that you did it the once. You know, to, to even do it one time is better than most people uh, do do it. Now, I think, you know, when you talk about one-hit wonders, there's almost like this negativity or... or there's almost a derision and kind of a laugh about it and it's not taken seriously and to, to actually get 
the opportunity to be a one-hit wonder. You have had to dedicate a lot of your life. You had to be a professional unless, you know, like you're at Wimbledon and you're a wild card. But even then, even then, you still have to beat the opposition in front of you. So I think the story kind of in the, the meta-narrative of, of society that it's almost negative to be a one-hit wonder. I think that's so overplayed and, and so bad. You know, you, you look at players in recent Premier League history like Michu, who had a fantastic mm-hmm. one-season jaunt in the Premier League. And then I think, tragically, he didn't actually make a transfer and then he got injured. I think that cost them in the long term. But he was still one of the hottest <laughs> prospects, not in just the Premier League, but in Europe for a long while. You can't take that away from them. Absolutely. Anybody who makes it to the top, even if it is just for a small moment in time, you've had to put so much energy, commitment, uh, dedication, love, sacrifices. It is astonishing. And they all must be commended. I tell you, I'm sure there's so many we've missed out and would love to commend. I'd love to hear from you. Make amends to that. Put us in our misery and give us your favourite one-hit wonders. Maybe stars who only played for their country once. Uh, maybe just one century at a test level or whatever it might be. So many possibilities here. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my slightly left-field take on Mr. King of the Aces. I just thought that was a bit of fun. We'll have to check it out on golf.com for more information. But for tonight... I always want to say a massive, massive thank you to a man who is many, many times a hit and indeed massively wonderful. The machine, Jason McKenna. I want to say to you, keep well, keep safe. Keep involved with us. Tweet us at Verulam Sports. And thanks for listening. All the best.